Well, thank you. I told the folks in the first hour, my last time here was in uh, 1997 in Lincoln. And I spoke at the Lincoln Berean Church. That was in February. And in January, Nebraska and Michigan tied for the national championship. I don't know if, how many of you remember that. And I, uh, you don't remember that? <laughs> you don't want to remember that. I don't know. And uh, so I was there for a couple of days, and I got up Sunday morning to speak, and I said, you know, uh, been here for two days now, and I got to admit, Lincoln's getting into my head, but Ann Arbor's in my heart. And I said, the distance from my head to my heart is about that far, and I said, I think that's about how much better we were than you guys this last year. Well, that was not the thing to say in that auditorium. Some guy got up in the last row, and he meandered down the aisle, and he had a University of Nebraska jacket on football jacket. He comes up on the platform, and I'm getting ready to speak, okay? And he takes that jacket off, he puts it over my suit coat, and he announces to the congregation, he's ready to preach now. <laughs> so I opened it up, and I said, made in Kmart? What is this? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm glad we didn't play that year, because you'd have probably beat us. But those are great traditions. You know, my wife and I, I was telling someone at the break that I think I've been to over about 180 games in the big house at the University of Michigan. And had season tickets in the 60s, and so, you know, it gets, it's a lot of fun. It's a great tradition. Yeah, they're all pagans, but, you know, a few Christians scattered among the football teams, but, you know, it's, it's, it's just fun. It's just a great time. And, you know, folks, we're, we're coming out of an economic tsunami. And I told the folks in the first hour, this is my sixth recession since I went to work in 1960 out of high school. My dad was a superintendent back then of the largest die-casting plant in the world, and he became disabled my senior year, so he had to retire. And so the plant manager called me one day and said, you know, your dad's having to leave us because of a disability, and so we want to give you a job because we don't think you'll be able to afford to, afford to go to college. And so they gave me a job in the purchasing department, Dollar Jarvis in Toledo. And my job was the rear windows for the Ford Mustang that came out in 1964. My job was to buy all those component parts and get that little vent window assembled and then shipped to the River Rouge plant in Detroit to get put into the Mustang car. Then they gave me the Ford Thunderbird and the Lincoln Continental, and that's sort of how I cut my teeth financially. And I was telling somebody a couple weeks ago, I was speaking in uh, Benton Harbor, Michigan, and they'd been hit hard because of the automotive. And I said, you know, that little vent window had 37 different component parts in it. 16 different suppliers supplied parts for that little vent window. Multiply that times a car, and you can see the economic downturn that's created when the automotive industry goes south, because you got all those supplies. You talk about trickle-down. That's, that's trickle-down. Well, I think we're coming out of the tsunami. There are signs that are positive. You watch the leading indicators now. They seem to be headed in the right direction. And, uh, but you know what? The Lord knows all about that. God is sovereign. He's in control. And I don't know what he's trying to teach us through this. Only he knows. But for, for saying nothing but the fact it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call to all of us. It's a wake-up call to all of us sitting in the chairs or the pews of the church that we need to focus on biblical stewardship and what the Lord has to say about how we're to handle our, our resources. But, you know, as my wife and I were driving, we left Thursday from Springfield, Ohio, and we drove through western Ohio, then we hit Indiana, then we hit, uh, you know, Iowa and Illinois and Iowa and then this part of uh, Nebraska. And tomorrow, this afternoon we'll head through Nebraska. Miles and miles and miles and miles of cornfields. Uh, it just—it just—it struck me because of what we're going through as a country. 
beans. I, I assume they were soybeans and just, just corn. I, I couldn't, you just can't, it's overwhelming. You know what that says? We feed the world. We do feed the world. That's why we're the greatest capitalistic story in the history of the world. Agriculture. You know, I live just, just north, you know, just south of the San Joaquin Valley. San Joaquin Valley starts about where we live and goes on up to Sacramento. And that's the greatest fruit basket in the world. You know, they grow fruit there all year round, just thousands and thousands and thousands of acres. And, and you think about that, and you think about what a great country we live in. And, uh, you know, they need our services, the world does. They need our technology. They need our agriculture. That's why we'll survive this economic tsunami. We'll come out of it. And we are starting to come out of it because we are the greatest story. And like I said earlier, I don't know what the Lord is doing. I don't know what God is doing here. But for nothing less, like I said, it's a wake-up call. And that's why we all need to get back to the basics of the Word of God and how we handle our resources. You know, there's 2,350 verses in the Bible about money and material possessions. 2,350. And you read through the text of those verses and you study it. There's a common theme that comes out of that, and that's generosity. So I want to take the few minutes we have left. I want to take you through the biblical principles of stewardship. Take your Bibles and turn with, to Matthew, with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24 are my favorite verses on this subject of biblical stewardship. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, your eye is clear or good. Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad or cloudy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and treasures. You cannot serve God and riches. You can summarize these six verses like this. You could look at verses 19 and 20. You could say earthly treasures corrupt. Money controls your life. It will eventually corrupt your life. Called greed. That's what we're witnessing right now in the last few months. You know, this, uh, this recession is going into 35 months. The average recession of the previous five has been a little over 11 months. This one's going into 35 months. Uncharacteristically long. But it's been triggered by greed. We've seen massive fraud. We've seen greed when it comes to lenders lending money. They had no business lending. People borrowing money. They had no business borrowing. We've seen the Madoffs. We've seen the Enrons. All those. It's greed. You can look at verses 22 and 23, and you can say yearning for earthly treasures could cause you to lose your spiritual vision. You can look at verse 24, and you can say money can draw you away from serving God if it controls your life. So if you buy into the materialistic mentality of our day and the culture bolts into your life and money begins to control your life, it could end up corrupting your life. Next step, you lose what spiritual vision God has given you to serve him with. The end result is a lack of interest in serving Christ. When you look at verses 19 and 20, it talks about laying up treasures on earth and verse 20 talks about laying up treasures in heaven. There's a difference. 
In this text, we're discouraged to lay up treasures on earth because treasures on earth are temporary. Treasures on earth have no redeeming value whatsoever. Folks, you came into this world with nothing, you're going to leave it with nothing. Treasures on earth are the clothes on our back, the homes we live in, the cars we drive, the pension plans we accumulate. None of that has any redeeming value. Treasures in heaven do. And in this text, we're encouraged to lay up treasures in heaven. So the question you might be asking yourself is, what are treasures in heaven? Treasures in heaven are ultimately people. Treasures in heaven are ultimately people. Think about it. Nothing will precede us to heaven except people. Nothing will follow us to heaven except people. So I could say to you today, Christians should buy people for heaven. Then how do we do that? By investing our lives and our resources in the Lord's work. Treasures in heaven are ultimately people. Everything we do has an impact in people. It's crewing friends for eternity. How's that? We're accruing friends for eternity. How do we do that? By investing in the kingdom gospel. That brings sinners to salvation. That's how we do that. Verses 22 and 23 talks about the lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is clear, your body's full of light. If your eye is bad or cloudy, your body's full of darkness. In verses 22 and 23, the eye becomes an illustration of the heart. What's he saying here? We all have two eyes. That's how we understand the things about us. We enjoy God's beautiful creation by and large through our eyesight. You know, we also have a spiritual eye. It's our heart. Our hearts are the very eyes of our soul. It's through our spiritual eye, our heart, that God's truth comes to us. How do we understand the mysteries of the Word of God? Eternal life. God never began. Get in a dark room, sit in a chair, and think about that one for a while. God never had a beginning? That's a mystery. How do we understand these things? Well, God reveals it to us through his scripture, through our spiritual eye, our heart. And if our spiritual eye, our heart is cloudy, it may be because we're materialistic. It may be that money becomes more important to us than scripture. The motto of many is, I want what I want, I want it now. I'm even willing to go into debt to get what I want now, because money controls their life. But if our spiritual eye, our heart, is good, like it talks about here, that means we have a hunger for the things of God. We read his word, we meditate upon his word, we memorize his word, and our passion is to mirror the word of God to the culture. That's a believer with a clear eye. Verse 24 talks about divided loyalties. You can't have a clear eye and a cloudy eye. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. You can't have one foot on earth and the other foot in heaven. It compartmentalizes your life. Folks, our life is not to be compartmentalized. Our life is a package. It all blends together to glorify the name of Christ. In my travels, I have had lunch several times with prosperous businessmen. And I lead them in the discussion. I love to do that. And sometimes I'll get them to admit to me that their spiritual life and their business life is separate. And I'll say, whoa, wait a minute here. Show me the text. Well, there isn't any. 
So I'll say to them, your business life better mirror your spiritual life or there's something seriously wrong with your spiritual life. They don't like to hear that, some of them. But the key verse here is Matthew 6.21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen, where you put your money is where your heart is. How we handle our money is an outward manifestation of what's really going on in our heart and life. If it's a heart issue, like it says here, it's a spiritual issue. And I believe one of the most important spiritual issues we have to deal with. That's why I've given my life to teaching this. Because that's where my heart is. That's where your heart needs to be. After we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, folks, one of the most important things you're going to have to deal with is how you handle this issue of stewardship. Because where you put your money is where your heart is. Very important issue. So the few minutes we have left, I want to share with you the three convictions for biblical stewardship. Let me show you God's financial plan. Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and then flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Watch how this flows. God's financial plan. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, in the first day, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. Be a consistent giver to the Lord's work as God has prospered you. Please say, I'm not prosperous. Everybody in this auditorium is prosperous. You live in America, you're prosperous. Oh, it's relative, sure. Some more prosperous than others, but we are all prosperous. Nobody goes without an America, having your needs met. Nobody starves to death in America. Nobody goes without a job very long unless they don't want to work. Travel with me. There are help-wanted signs everywhere, even in this economic tsunami. You can flip hamburgers if you have to. But needs are met. Needs are met. So be a consistent giver to the Lord's work as God has prospered you. And if you don't believe we're prosperous, talk to a missionary to a third world country. Many of you have done that. Many of you have been there. The most life-changing experience I ever had was in 1977, 78, after I started this ministry. I spent three weeks in the Philippines. Changed my life. I had never seen poverty before. Never witnessed it. I was in culture shock. Culture shock. I couldn't wait to get home. And when I got off that plane in San Francisco, I, I want to tell you, I almost got on my knees and kissed the ground. I was so grateful to be back in America. We are the most prosperous people living in the most prosperous country in the history of the world. And what is sad is most Christians take it for granted. Most Americans take it for granted. Now, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Now, watch how this flows. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly or a little bit. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully or a whole lot. So each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudging their necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Very important phrase. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Now when you read these three verses, the question you could ask is, what is the blessing or what is the harvest? You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Folks, there are two benefits that accrues to the believer who is a generous giver to the Lord's work. The first benefit is found there in verse 7. It's that little phrase, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
When you look at verse 7, it starts out, so that each one do as he purposes in his own heart. And giving is always voluntary. We are free to give from a willing heart. It's not casual giving, it should be purposeful giving. That you give with no reluctance, it's not what you have to do. There's no pressure, you give because it's in your heart. Giving is always a heart issue. Giving is a form of worship issue. We are grateful for what Jesus Christ did for us at Calvary. It's always a heart issue. You give because it's in your heart. Tithing can be legalistic if you're not careful. If you come to church and give because you sense you have to give, there is a possibility you could be giving grudgingly. Folks, if you ever find yourself giving to your church grudgingly, you might just as well stick it back in your pocket because you're dishonoring God. That's wrong heart. You don't ever want to go there. Do you realize this statement, for God loves a cheerful giver, is not said anywhere else in Scripture? It's only said right here. We know from John 3.16 that God loves all people. Everybody in this room could quote that one. In 1 John 4, God loves his chosen in a special way. In Matthew 5, God even loves his enemies. Do you realize that when you're a cheerful giver to the Lord's work, that you are in a special class of people that God loves uniquely? God loves you uniquely when you are a cheerful giver to his work? What the Greek word for cheerful is? It's hilarious. It's God loves a hilarious giver. Not the person that comes in and sits down in a chair at this church and says, oh, you know, you go to Omaha Bible Church, and it isn't long, you know, they'll sing a few songs, and uh, someone will pray, usually the pastor, then they'll ask you for your money. And they, they, they pass that, what was that, a sock that went by me? <laughs> and ask you for your money. A hat. <laughs> the person, no, it's the person that comes in and sits down in that chair and says, oh, another opportunity to give. Another opportunity to give to the needy. Another opportunity to give to missions. Another opportunity to give to my church so I can impact Omaha for Jesus Christ and the world at large. Hey, I can do that. I can even double that. That's what he's talking about. That's a hilarious giver. Comes back to the heart, it always does. Now there's a second benefit. It's found in verse 8. Whom God loves, he lavishes. Whom God loves, he lavishes. It's the abounding grace of work that God does in our heart and life. Now be careful, it's not health, wealth, prosperity, name it and claim it, you see preached on television today. Those are counterfeits. Those are frauds. Send me your seed money and you will be healed. Send me your seed money and your debts will go away. They're counterfeits. They're frauds. But a lot of people respond. And as a result, there are millions of dollars today being made off the Lord's work to fund lavish lifestyles. Those are heinous crimes. I would not want to be standing in their shoes someday and face the Lord. Major counterfeits. We're talking about the grace of God here. Verse 6, you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. Verse 7 says you give cheerfully. Verse 8 says God will pour out abundant grace to you. Give, God gives back all grace. God gives back so you can do even more. It comes back to the heart. It comes back to the motive. It goes like this. If you're generous, God will allow you to continue to be generous. 
If you're generous, you'll receive generosity. It's what the Bible teaches. We've all been in testimony time situations where it could be a church service, it could be a Bible study, it could be a fellowship class, and they say, let's have some testimonies, and someone will stand up and say, you know what, you can't outgive God. It's not smoke and mirrors. It's exactly what the Bible teaches. That's what this is teaching. It's a spirit of generosity. It's the number one conviction in the Word of God. Learn to be generous. That's it. If I'm generous, everything flows from there. If I'm generous, my heart is right. I'm a biblicist. If my passion is to be generous, money will never control my life. Credit cards will never control my life because my passion is to be generous. It goes back to the heart. It always does. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, you give, God will refill everything. Proverbs 10, 22, God blesses the faithful giver. Proverbs 28, 27, give to the poor you will never want. Isaiah 48, 17, and 18, if you would have done what I told you, I would have flooded you. Proverbs 11, 24, and 25, there is one who scatters yet increases all the more. Then there is one who withholds what is just due, but results only in more what? Ever watch the life of a stingy person? Enough is never enough. They're never satisfied. You know why? They're discontented. That's why. And these two verses conclude with this sentence, the generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. If you're generous, you'll receive generosity. If you're generous, God will lie to continue to be generous. That's what the Bible teaches. You know, three things happens to a generous believer. Number one, it breaks the chain of selfishness in their life. Number two, it'll humble you. It's humbling to be generous. It's humbling to be able to come alongside somebody in need. It's humbling to say, you know what? God's called you to the mission field. I want to be a part of that. That's humbling. Number three, to place a loose grip on your possessions. Because you know it all comes from God anyway. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The silver and gold is his. He's just loaned it to us to serve him with and to enjoy. That's his intention. For his chosen, for those he loves, and those he loves uniquely. Folks, we are so privileged. So privileged. Now, you got to be careful. You never give to get. Never. That's wrong motive. That's wrong heart. That's a selfish motive. You never give with the idea you're going to get. Because what you get back may not be material. Because the grace of God encompasses our very being. You may get that extra measure of faith when you need it. That's what he may give you. He may give you the ability to show pity. He may give you the ability to love the unlovable. He may give you courage when you need to stand tall for the things of God. He may give you strength when you're tired, energy when you need it. He may give you zeal for the Lord's work enlightenment, wisdom, all that grace God is able to bestow on those he loves and those he loves uniquely. In fact, God is able to bestow so much of that on us, we never have to fear about dispensing it. Folks, that's God's plan for his elect. That's how we do good works after we're saved. Comes back to the heart, always does. There's a second conviction. You're generous, now let's be content. 
Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. This issue of biblical contentment. By the way, one of the strongest worded exhortations in Scripture is contentment. We just read it. You can't serve God and mammon. Book of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. You've read that many times. Contentment is synonymous with obedience. Contentment is a preoccupation with the well-being of others. That's contentment. Contentment has nothing to do with self. Now, there's an enemy of contentment. It's called materialism. Let me define materialism for you. Materialism is not having nice things. That's not materialism. Materialism is your attitude towards having nice things. You can be poor and be materialistic because you cover things you don't have. If you live in a better home than I do, enjoy it. You and your spouse can go to Hawaii on your anniversary. Wish my wife and I could join you. If you drive a better car than I do, let me borrow it once in a while. That's not materialism. That's generosity. <laughs> We're to be content. We're to be content. As God prospers you, be more generous. That's the issue. It's always the issue. Look at verse 7. If we brought nothing into this world, it's certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Now look at verse 9. But, however, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. This kind of a person in verse 9 is compulsive. This person is greedy. They will probably eventually lose their integrity because money controls their life. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money, it's the love of it. For some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Folks, it's not the high cost of living that gets us, but living high. It's not how much you make, it's how well you want to live. It's not how much you make, it's how well you want to live. And every one of us need to look in the mirror, including yours truly. Hey, do I need all this stuff? Do I need all these toys? Do I need all these things? And boy, this tsunami, this tsunami, this tsunami we're going through right now is a wake-up call. It is a wake-up call. And every one of us need to stand back and say, hey, wait a minute. What has really become important in my life? It's not the stuff I accumulate. It's giving my life to Jesus Christ. And being a steward of the resources that he's allowed me to enjoy. And he's allowed me to serve him with. That's what it's all about. It's not how much you make. It's how well you want to live. It's always the issue with money. Number three, conviction. Be a person of integrity. Flip back to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Look at this, verses 16 to 19. These six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. That's pretty strong language. In fact, it doesn't get much stronger than that in Scripture. Proud look, that's deceit. Lying tongue, that's deceit. Hands that shed innocent blood, how about hands that destroy innocent reputations? A heart that devises wicked schemes or plans. I'm told most get-rich-quick schemes are hatched in Christian circles. Isn't that wonderful testimony of the Lord's work? You know, if money controls your life, you're a schemer. If credit cards control your life, money controls your life, you're a schemer. You're always scheming. Always scheming. 
And God hates that form of behavior. Feet that are swift in running to mischief or evil, false witness who speaks lies, one who sows discord among brethren. Any gossipers here? Any discord sowers here? I have simple policy of life. Someone comes to me with gossip. But another brother and sister in Christ, when they get done done telling me what they tell me, I say to them, now, you need to understand something. What you told me, I heard loud and clear. I'm going to go to the person you told me that about. I'm going to tell them what you told me, and I'm going to tell them who told me. You know what? I'm out of the loop. Because my buddies know I'll do that. You know what? I'll do that in a heartbeat, and so should you. If someone ever comes to you in this church with gossip about another brother or sister in Christ... Gossip about a board member. Gossip about one of the pastors. You put a screeching halt to it now. Now. That's ungodly behavior. Now, they don't repent of it. What does the Bible say? Confront them with a witness. Matthew 18, if they don't repent of it then, what does the Bible say? Tell it to the church. If they don't repent of it then, what does the Bible say? Discipline them out of the church. Sometimes it's called blessed subtraction. You send a message, you bring a reproach on the name of Christ, you bring a reproach on this church, you bring a reproach on somebody in this church, your family, and you're unrepentant, there are biblical consequences to that. That's real love. That's real love, because you're told to go after them, rescue them, save them from their sin. I have to tell you, I I am absolutely amazed at the churches in this country that say they love Christ that don't practice biblical discipline. How's that? Chapter 16, verse 8. And I know you do. Better is a little with righteousness and vast revenues without justice. One who has vast revenues without justice is a rule breaker. Ever bend the rules? Ever take a discount you're not entitled to? Guys, ever take your wives out to dinner someplace and she gets an all-you-can-eat salad bar and you get a sandwich and you mooch off her salad bar? That's stealing food from that restaurant. Get two all-you-can-eat salad bars. Folks, we don't play those games. We don't do that. We're concerned about our testimony because we're being watched. The Lord sees it. Chapter 19, verse 1. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one who is perverse in his lips and is a fool. Perverse person is a boaster, a braggart, self-willed, proud, egotistical. Chapter 20, verse 7 is my favorite. Righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. Mom and dad, you want to raise children of integrity? How about being models of integrity? What's going on in the privacy of your home that those kids see that nobody in your public life ever sees? Are you consistent all the time? Are you a person of integrity all the time? Tell this one quick story. I went to dinner with a friend of mine by the name of Larry. Our wives were at a missionary meeting. He had two boys, six and eight years old, when this happened. We got done eating. He paid his bill. I paid mine. We're walking to his car, and the cashier gave him $2 too much and change. He laughed put it in his pocket. Get in his car, go to his home, puts his two boys to bed. We're sitting on the couch watching the football game, waiting for our wives, and I said to him, I said, Larry, i got to tell you, I'm stunned about what I saw, what you did in that restaurant. I said, Larry, you just stole $2 from that cashier. That might didn't belong to you. I said, I don't understand. He was stunned. 
red as a beet, got up off that couch, went in that bedroom, got those two boys out of bed, dressed them, took them out to the car. I went along. Let's see what he was going to do. Went back to that restaurant, took those two boys inside that restaurant, and went up to that cashier, told her what happened, gave her the $2 back and another little tip. I wish I'd have had a video camera. I would have zoomed in on the eyes of those two boys. Their eyes were as big as saucers. I'm going to tell you something, folks. Those two little boys will never forget what Daddy did that night. They will never forget it, ever. What a lesson and in integrity, doing what is right. Where's your heart? What's important to you? It's generosity, contentment, and integrity. Let me put it together. If I'm generous, everything starts from there because I'm dealing with the right heart. If I'm generous and my passion is to be generous, of course I'm content. Because if I'm not content, I'm not going to be generous. I'm generous. I'm content. I'm a person of integrity. I want to do what's right. I want to do what the Bible teaches. Simple. Not any more complex than that. Now let me put it to practice real quickly. Let's put it to practice. Three convictions. Now let's live it. Be generous. Take care of the needs of your family. Protect your family from a catastrophic occurrence. Plan for the future. That's it. It's not rocket science. Be generous. That starts it. Take care of the needs of your family. Protect your family from a catastrophic occurrence. Premature death, premature disability. Plan for the future. Have a retirement plan. Have a will or a trust. Now listen to me. If credit cards control your life, you can't do any of that. Credit cards control your life. Can't be generous. And you come to church and, and, and Pat preaches a wonderful message. And God lays a burden on your heart to respond. And you can't respond because credit cards control your life. I refuse to live like that. Not taking care of the needs of your family. Credit cards control your life. Not, not protecting your family from a catastrophic occurrence. You can't afford the premiums. You're not planning for the future. Don't have the money. That's why stewardship is so important. Because everything comes together then. Everything blends together. And I can practice biblical stewardship. That's it. That's it. It's not rocket science. It's discipline. And the Christian life is disciplined life. Don't ever come to me and say, Jim, I'm faithful to my church. I'm faithful to my devotions. I'm out of control financially, but I'm okay. No, you're not. No, you're not. You just compartmentalize your life. Where you put your money is where your heart is. It's the issue. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your wonderful principles in your book that are so clear. Thank you for sending your Son to die that we can have forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and you've given us your word that we can read and we can live by. Stewardship is a big part of that. You know that. We need to practice it. Thank you for this church, for its testimony, for its wonderful leadership. God, help us all to be faithful, to be men and women of unimpeachable integrity in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.